Welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with Phil Dave, Clive Roslin and Tony Honigberg. Coming up on this episode, we have got a bumper edition for you this week, if we say so ourselves. We're going to be finding out all about the latest in the world of Jewish tennis from sports editor Andrew Sherwood. This obviously in time for Wimbledon 2018. We're also going to be hearing about Forest School. Now, you may not be familiar with this concept, but you soon will be. Karen Ben-Ezra and Diana Sakalos of Karen's Nursery will make sure that we know about that. We're also going to be hearing about Fiona Elias who is hoping to raise £50,000 for a pioneering new treatment for her multiple sclerosis. And as if all of that isn't enough, Rabbi Jeff Berger from Rambam Safadi Synagogue will be telling us about why it's not just the Holocaust we should be remembering when it comes to acts of genocide. But before all of that, with a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week, here's Vivian Krieger. And we begin with the warning from former JLC chairman Sir Mick Davis that he believes the diaspora discourse on Israel has never been more polarised, vicious or impoverished and says that it could lead to Jewish communities being damaged. Sir Mick is quoted as saying that the long-term viability of Zionism and with it the state of Israel is under threat and that most of the community in the UK find both the British Jewish far left and far right objectionable. The pilot of an Austrian Airlines flight going from Tel Aviv to Vienna had to leave his cockpit to try and convince several women to change their seats because Haredi men refused to sit next to them. The plane left 40 minutes late. In June, the CEO of El Al announced that the airline will remove any passenger who refuses to sit next to another for any reason. Three High Court judges have ruled that councils in Britain must consider the effect on an area's Jewish population if they are to debate boycotts of Israel. The case was brought by Jewish Human Rights Watch in order to tackle what they consider were disguised resolutions being adopted to support the boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign by local authorities. Campaigners have described the ruling as a very significant victory. The British government has said it's bringing forward an assessment of the Palestinian curriculum after MPs claimed Palestinian children were having lessons of hate. In a letter, the Middle East minister, Alistair Burt, expressed concern about a recent report he'd seen and said the review will include a rigorous and independent review of Palestinian textbooks. And finally, a claim has been made that Israel's single patient record system could revolutionise the NHS in the UK. The chief executive of the Nuffield Trust says the Israeli system means a doctor knows instantly what is happening to a patient, what their needs are, is informed regarding alerts about drugs and gets reminders for preventative care. His comments follow the cancellation of the British government's planned medical database after a series of security breaches. Viv, thank you very much indeed. Well, first on the Jewish Views this week, let's begin like we usually do with a look through your copy of the Jewish News. Joining us to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer. And on the front page, Rich, the fight for Zionism. And what a large boxing glove donning the Star of David, I see. Yeah, we have, a, flag. we have a big boxing glove on the front page and it symbolises our headline, as you say, the fight for Zionism. Now, this is a column that was written on the Jewish News website earlier in the week by Mick Davis, a community grandee. He's the chairman of the Conservative Party. Of course, he was the former chairman of the Jewish Leadership Council. He has issued a huge warning this week saying that the very term Zionism and that the future of the whole Zionism project, if 
you like, is at risk. The viability of it is at risk by community splits, by the fact that the left and the right no longer see eye to eye. The far left and the far right we're talking here. Now, of course, the middle ground, I'd say 75% of us occupy the middle ground of the Jewish community. But when you have the far left giving Kaddish for Hamas, and then you have the far right saying these people are capos, and you have the far left saying that the policies of the Israeli state do not help peace process, are undermining the peace process and the values of Jewish communities and Judaism around the world. And then you also have the far right saying that nothing that Bibi does could possibly be construed as anything but positive. I mean, you can see these are conflated opinions on either side. Mm. My feeling is there's so much at stake now with Corbyn as a potential prime minister, Israel in a very difficult position politically, anti-Semitism on the rise. People are just scared now more than ever, I think. And it brings out the, the worst in people. And I think it brings people to the edges and people don't talk anymore. There's no dialogue. It's just statements and fear and facts go out the window. So, so Mick is saying that there's now a real fight for what Zionism truly means and, and where the middle ground will be dragged in the years to come. But arguably, you've just hit the nail on the head there anyway, because as you say, so many times now, all we hear is political statements from both sides of the argument saying almost that's it. You know, this is fact. They don't meet in the middle. They don't try and converse. And it's partly because people can hide behind this barrier of social media so they can express their opinion. They garner a following from that opinion. And therefore, we're actually sort of seeing the ramifications in everyday politics, even in this country as well, where we just have such polarization. It's almost one extreme or the other now. I can almost understand what Mick Davis is actually getting at when he says this middle ground is just slowly but surely sort of disintegrating before us. It does sort of make sense. Yeah, it certainly isn't just Zionism, is it? I mean, if you look at Parliament today, it's totally in exactly the same situation. Yeah, I, I think the problem is that the middle ground has always felt very secure and it had a great belief in its in its structure. I think there's been so many serious attempts now undermining Zionism, Judaism, the Jewish community, Israel. There is, I think, a clear and present danger now that we're starting to take it quite seriously. That the only way for some people to deal with it is just, just to put up the, the blinds, put up the, the shields uh, and actually fight fire with fire. But I don't think this is helping us in the slightest. So you have, uh, on the one hand, the, the, the far left, the, the younger student bodies who are unaware, I think, of, of, the, of the blessing that Israel is to, mm. to the Jewish community and the fact that it was lacking for so many years and the fact that it is this this wonderful thing they have in their lifetimes. Samik is, is mentioning this in, in his column. Well, on the other hand, you have a hard right that perhaps is starting to lose sight of the, the values that perhaps Israel was, was first founded on. And th this is a, a position that Israel has been forced into. I mean, the Palestinian cause has done Israel no favours in terms of, mm. I think, morality and, and moving it in the right direction. If, if only there'd been a balanced two state for two peoples at the start, perhaps Israel would be now the state that we'd always hoped it would be. But it, it's an ugly situation. And us as Zionists and as diaspora Jews, I think, are, are looking on with some horror. But most of us are middle-of-the-road Zionists well, and diaspora I, Jews. I imagine all, all of us around this table would yeah. count ourselves as middle-of-the-road, and I do see and hear things from the left and the right that I identify with. 
But of course, the truth is always somewhere in the middle. Yeah, absolutely. Let's move on to something a little more positive, shall we? And on page 24, a nice multicoloured headline that says, Making Us Proud. One can only assume this is in time for pride in London. Yes, you know we love our lists, our countdowns, <laughs> our 40 under 40, our 39 under 39, our 37s under 37. Well, I still live in hope you'll get the one under one. Uh, <laughs> we'll get there eventually, Phil. Don't you worry about that. So this week we are profiling 10 individuals who have shaped attitudes and acceptance towards LGBT plus Jews in Britain. And it's going to be London Pride people are going to be coming out tens of thousands of them across the streets of London accentuating their pride and, and their, their happiness and, and joy and confidence and these are the 10 Jews not are there any 10 I mean I'm sure there's many more I apologize for those we've omitted and hopefully we'll rectify that in the in the months to come but these are 10 that have done everything they could possibly do to shine a light on acceptance and shine a light on on progressive attitudes towards Jews uh, in the LGBT plus community. And how were these 10 formed and decided and nominated? Where did all of that come from? Well, we worked with Keshet on this. This wasn't a panel. This wasn't us getting in votes from readers and then having a panel to kind of hone down who should be and who shouldn't be in. These are just 10 people. As I said, there's a, a huge amount of people I'm sure that will feel justified in, in being in this list and, and those that are I'm sure will be delighted that their peers think so highly of them. But yeah, these are just a, uh, it's a taster, if you like, of, of the of the people that are the movers and shakers uh, in this part of our community. There's nobody in any particular order in there, it's just 10 people. No, actually funnily enough, when we laid it out, we did lay it out in numerical order, 1 right. through 10, and then taking a look at it, I started to realise, yes, you could think this is actually a top 10 list and it's yes like, these are just 10 people and, and number one is who have you got down there anybody that is uh, uh, we have rabbi ellie tick for sarah from brighton and hove we've got joe hyman we've got peggy sherwood i'm, I'm saying their names more than their biographies because mm. these are people that are, are fresh to me as well i was reading about these people for the first time and it's extraordinary stories of, of people that are pushing the agenda forward and opening up people's ideas of, of, of where we should be as a community you know, in, in 2018. It can only be a good thing, I think. I'm fascinated by that list because I once, some years ago, interviewed a rabbi who had been an orthodox rabbi and then announced to the world that he was a homosexual. And the orthodox synagogue threw him out and the liberal synagogue took him in. And he became the sort of shining light for, for Jews of that gender. And I wondered if he would be in the list. That's the only reason I'm asking. I don't suppose you mean Rabbi Mark Solomon, perchance, because the description of him in this week's paper actually reflects exactly what you have just said. He was the first UK Orthodox rabbi to come out as gay, having studied for the rabbinate at the Lubavitcher Yeshiva Gadola in Melbourne. Does that sound familiar? It could well be. Well, that's the man. And he is one of our, our ten. So clearly we have curated our list absolutely perfectly. Good. Fantastic. Well, there you go. OK, well, let's turn back a bit in the paper. And now on page nine, a nice, intriguing headline. This JFS bans mobile phones in 
interest of mental health. Yeah, the kids aren't going to be happy about this one, are they? <laughs> They'll be tweeting about it. How are they going to snap numpty and Twitter chat or whatever <laughs> whatever it is they do these days? Yeah, when I was at school... You're so up to date, Richard. Thank I you like very it. much. I'm always at the cutting edge, Tony. Uh, when I was at school and What's I wanted... Uh, <laughs> when I was at school and I wanted to get a phone call from my mum, I get the tannoy announcement, Richard Farrow, please come to the maintenance office. Oh, I mean, and now Again. look at it. <laughs> Unbelievable. So JFS, obviously, and many schools will be having this up and down the country, the same problem. What do you do in the middle of classes? Their phones are beeping mm. and flashing and they're on Instagram and all sorts of things. Jewishnews.co.uk, I'm sure they're on there as well. So JFS, the new headmistress of JFS, only installed a couple of weeks ago, Deborah Fink, has decided in her, in her wisdom that she's going to ban phones. That means they are going to be locked up in a special phone locker when you get in and you're not going to get them until you get home. Now, this is interesting because two things. Number one, how is it policeable? I don't know how you would police this at all. I mean, if your phone is off and it's in your pocket, unless you're going to search someone, you'll never know. And secondly, does this really address the problem? Because the problem is a full problem, isn't it? It's social media. It's online at home it's cyberbullying it's all sorts of things so really this just tackles one element and it's an element when they're in a safe space but it's quite a crucial element that could actually teach anyone and i am such a firm believer in this i know i'm not encouraged to have an opinion on this program i'm going to offer it on this subject anyway because it's a real it's a real passion of mine because it teaches people that there is actually life away from the mobile phone. And although at first it will freak the pupils out a little bit to be torn apart from them and their mobile devices, what will actually happen is in time they will recognise that, do you know what, there is stuff to be done apart from using a mobile phone. Nothing irritates me more than if I'm round a table, especially sort of say for some sort of meal of some description, someone starts pulling their phone out and using it. Hello, I'm here in person. Yeah, but Phil, this isn't just children doing this. This is adults. We have friends of a similar age to me that do the same thing. They, and they're not showing you their photographs of their grandchildren or whatever it is. They are taking text or, or searching on the internet or anything like this. I think this thing in the JFS might be good because it may help the teachers, the children will they have something to concentrate on, which will be the teacher other than the mobile phone. So I think probably yeah, help I'm lessons. sure it will help in the classroom. Yeah. My concern is, firstly, for the seven or so hours you're at school, you are in a safe environment. Mm. You won't really need your phone. Mums and dads know where their kids are, so that's fine. And secondly, I'm much more interested in Instagram updating their terms and conditions so they're actually understandable to children, which they yet to do, or Facebook policing hmm. its content so that there's not stuff that's vulnerable and upsetting to children. These are the main issues on social media. I don't think taking an iPhone away from a 12-year-old when they're at school is really going to solve the problem. Well, let us hope it's a step in the right direction. And of course, do any JFS pupils who are listening to this, please make sure that you download the Jewish Views podcast and listen to us before the bell goes. Thank you very much, Richard Farrer, for a look at the paper for this week. And don't forget that you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can always read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, in case you have let it slip your notice, we are currently in the middle of one of the greatest, if not the greatest, tennis tournaments of the year. I am, of course, referring to Wimbledon, and unbelievably enough, there is a bit of a Jewish element to Wimbledon this year. And to tell us a little bit about how exactly the, the world of tennis is celebrated by our very own community is sports and community editor Andrew Sherwood from the Jewish News joins us now. Andrew, 
I suppose, first and foremost, we should start off with the, the bad news, of course, because those who have been following Wimbledon will know that Judy Seller, Israel's pretty much only hope, if not, uh, well, certainly only hope as far as the men's singles is concerned, is out. He is indeed, Phil, and it was it was sad, it was unfortunate. Unfortunately, it wasn't a surprise. He was drawn against Rafael Nadal, the world's number one, so it's going to be a head of a victory had he pulled that off. He went into the match, he's carrying an injury, a long-term injury. He hasn't played since the end of May, so he, it really wasn't a great surprise at all. And speaking to him afterwards, he said the same kind of stuff. He said he actually performed better than he hoped. Do you think that he probably would have been filled with an element of dread as soon as he knew that his name was drawn against? He Rafa? did. He said, you know, sometimes you need a bit of muzzle when you when the draw comes out, and he didn't have it at all. <laughs> um, to get, he to, really didn't. He didn't. To get drawn against Nadal, he was, you know, he was smiling because it's one of those things. It's unfortunate. It's sad, but in reality, he was never going to pull off. But there were one or two moments of hope. I mean, you said that when you spoke to him afterwards, that he was saying about how it wasn't as bad as he thought it could be because yeah. there were one or two moments when he looked like he really was giving as good as he sure. got sure I mean he enjoyed it and he said he, he did enjoy it to an extent as well I mean the first set was three all until he was broken and then Nadal served out second set was more straightforward and the third set he actually broke Nadal in his first game which was good but then Nadal but it didn't stop him being defeated Nadal in straight back, sets anyway Nadal so. broke back straight away and that was that kind of thing but no as, you, as the match wore on third set he played a few nice shots and the crowd got behind him as well maybe because they enjoy an underdog but they seem to he's a, he's a very likeable character on the courts anyway the crowd supported him and I just think he enjoyed it Andrew are there more Jewish players in this year's tournament than there have been? No in fact the other way around when I first started covering uh, Wimbledon for the Jewish News which okay was the best part of 10 years ago you could expect to see at least half a dozen Israelis never mind Jewish players but Israelis that number has literally diminished with each passing year and this year we've got two Israelis Dudi Seller Jonathan Ehrlich who's in the doubles Ehrlich was one of the half a dozen players going back 10 years so that is how the situation has stagnated why do you think that is it's a lack of structure in Israel. Again, I spoke to Seller about it afterwards. He was saying he'd love to actually be a coach. He'd love to go into coaching, but if there's no federation there, like we've got in the UK, mm. players aren't being developed. There's no real youth scheme. There's one uh, junior who will be playing at Wimbledon this year, Yishai Oliel. But apart from it, that's it. And as players have been retiring and obviously being forced to retire through injury and age, there's just no backup. No youngsters and now, apart from Oliel, that really is it. And Seller has spoken about this quite a few times. It's quite sad. He's, well, he's, he's upset about it as well, but there's nothing that can really be done. Well, let's look outside of Israel because there is still some hope for the community at large in the form of Argentinian Diego Schwartzman. A lovely Jewish sounding name as well. Absolutely. So he's still in it. Well, he is. Let's put it this way. I'm going to make this very clear. The Jewish Views is always recorded on a Wednesday. And as we speak, he is still in the contest. I don't know what's happened by the time you're listening to this. (laughs) He is indeed. Uh, Great background information there. No, he is. Um, Diego Schwartzman is actually, he's currently ranked 11 in the world. So we're talking the, the 11th best male tennis player is Jewish, which is great. He's ranked 14th at Wimbledon. This is his fourth championships and he'd never actually won a game at Wimbledon. So he's already done something he's never done before. He won the first round clash, as you said, on Tuesday. He's now facing an opponent who he's only played once before, Rafi Vishali. Schwartzman lost, but he's confident. Um, grass isn't his favourite surface. Grass is such a short time over the whole season. It's a month and that's it. 
we Brits think of it as this wonderful thing because it's Wimbledon. And mm. As far Queens. as we're concerned, that's all Dennis has Ex- played on. Exactly. <laughs> um, in the grand scheme of things, some of the players, said they love coming to Wimbledon, as Schwartzman said, but it's for a month out of 11 months. So, yeah, they come here, they enjoy it. But it's not his favourite surface. But, yeah, he's won his first match. Hopefully he'll win his second and go into the second week. Well, there's still some hope yet. And, of course, if people want to follow all in the world of uh, Jewish tennis and, indeed, most other sports as well, head to the Jewish News website. The sports section, I'm sure, will keep you posted. Indeed. Thank you for the plug, Phil. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, as a community, I think it is fair to say that we are all more than familiar and aware of the ghastly period in history that we know as the Holocaust. However, there are, of course, subsequent genocides that maybe we are not as familiar about that we should be. Well, to tell us a bit about one that has taken place a little more recently than 70 years ago, in fact, the early 90s to be precise, is Rabbi Jeff Berger, who joins us now. Rabbi Berger, perhaps you would just start by telling us exactly what genocide we are talking about here and how you have been marking its anniversary. The um, Srebrenica genocide occurred in 1995. Recently, Uh, There was a a study tour that was arranged by an organization called Remembering Srebrenica UK, and I was fortunate to be among a group of imams and rabbis who went for three days to visit Sarajevo, Tulsa, and Srebrenica itself. And when you were there, what exactly was done to commemorate this, apart from your mere presence? Well, the commemoration itself will take place from the 11th to the 14th of July, which is the anniversary of the mass murder of 8,372, mostly Bosniak men and boys. We went in anticipation. I believe that there is an effort from the UK government to make sure that the genocide is remembered. And so therefore, they've invested funds in having study tours. And I recall that the tour guide told us that he has about 30 groups a year that come through. What I find a bit disturbing about this is that considering how recently it was, you know, obviously the Holocaust we remember and and know about obviously took place, as we know, in the 30s. But this was the early 90s. This is very recent history. And yet I feel as if I know next to nothing about it. Why do you think that that might be the case, that there's not enough emphasis placed on genocides such as this one? That's a very difficult question. Every year there's an International Holocaust Memorial Day that is commemorated in January. And for the last four years, as a rabbi of the Rambam Sephardi Synagogue community in Elstree and Borm Wood, I have been invited to participate in commemorations. And they've always included the genocides of Srebrenica, Rwanda, and Cambodia, as well as the Holocaust. And of course, there's no way of comparing the scale to the Holocaust with some of these horrible events that have occurred uh, since. My experience was that it was a shock to believe that it still is happening. It happened at the end of the 1990s, and still today we read of countries where this is going on. Could it, could it be that people uh, are not aware of it so much as the Holocaust because the numbers were so small. I mean, they're they're big numbers, but they're they're smaller than, than, say, 6 million in the Holocaust, 6 million Jews in the Holocaust. Could it be that, do you think, that then it's not publicized as much, and and so consequently people don't know so much about it? I'm not an expert on 
the area of genocides, I would say that I would be particularly very cautious not to use the word Holocaust to describe anything other than the experience of the Second World War myself. It seems that humanity has not learned about the way to prevent genocide. And we see in a lot of cases, these are issues that result from a struggle over resources. And too often, um, they are stoked by feelings of racial and also religious hatred. But this was an inhumanity, wasn't it? And what was the most inhumane thing about it, did you, do you think? There are two things that struck me on the tour. First of all, we went to visit a forensic lab uh, where they were doing DNA studies. In the earlier periods when there were genocides, there was no way of identifying bodies. But by the time the Srebrenica uh, uh, genocide occurred, they were able to use DNA to match body parts because the one of the horrors of the event was that originally the Serbian uh, military murdered in cold blood these men and boys and buried them in mass graves. And when it looked like they were not going to be successful in winning the war, they then sent equipment in to exhume some of the bodies and rebury them in what are called secondary graves and possibly tertiary graves. And so you had a situation where human body parts were separated um, and it required DNA analysis in order to match them up again. To me, I think that's probably one of the most horrible parts. Um, one of the other most horrible things, it seems to me, is the fact that these people really were, they could almost have been related, couldn't they? Well, the guy that we had who led our tour, which was a three-day event, explained to us that if you look at the citizens, certainly in the town of Sarajevo, a town that has a 450-year history, there was a long period, especially for the Jewish community, which thrived in Sarajevo, but as well for the Muslim and the Christian community, there was a lot of cooperation and harmony, and they lived next to each other. Today, still, you can find in the old part of town along the central pedestrian walkway. You can find a synagogue that was built in the 1500s, a mosque, and a church all within 200 meters of each other. So the, the, the horrible part was that somehow or another, the rhetoric that was used brought about this form of hatred that caused neighbor to turn on neighbor. And that, that really was astounding. But looking at the people themselves, they all are white-skinned, Many of them are the same height and the same body features, broad-shouldered. They wear the same dress. They have almost the same names. So there was no way of actually designating who was a Muslim and who wasn't. Are they now back living together with each other? Have you got Muslim next to Christian, next to Jew, next to... Or not many Jewish people left in that area. But. Right. So, so one of the things that I found reprehensible was that in Srebrenica itself, which is in an enclave that belongs to the Serbian part of the country, mm. the Republic of Srebska, the mayor of the town denies that there was ever a genocide that took place there. That I find to be horrendous. And also, there was some type of an agreement that seems to have been made after the war that only a certain number of people would be prosecuted and the rest were allowed to go free. And so... People say that those who committed the crimes, the perpetrators, are still walking free mm -hmm. and they have to confront them on a day-to-day -day basis. Just finally, would you 
be prepared to say what, as a rabbi, what you hope for the future of that area of the world and for, I, frankly, I suppose all of humanity, really, based on events like this? Well, if you'd allow me, I, I wrote something that I was hoping to publish, and I'll share that with you. That this was allowed to happen again in the late 20th century and is still happening in other parts of the world is a sad indictment of the cruelty that our species inflicts upon itself. Like the fratricide of Cain killing his brother Abel, God said the blood of the innocent cry cries out for redress. And I think that is true about Bosnia still. We can serve as witnesses, and that is one of the reasons I was invited to be on the program. We can report what we learned, and we can warn others against such acts of horror. But it is hard to imagine how the victims' families will ever be comforted from their loss. Sadly to me, the Jewish experience has taught that the impact that this will have can last for generations. Rabbi Jeff Berger from Rambam Zavadi Synagogue. Thank you very much, and we'll hear from you again a bit later on in the program with our Rabbinic Thought for the Week, but for now, thank you. Thank you very much, Phil. If you'd like any more information on any of the stories or need the guests featured on this episode of The Jewish Views, then go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News, and in the studio with us today is Fiona Elias who is a mother of two from Edgware, and Fiona has multiple sclerosis, but has launched a crowdfunding appeal to pay for pioneering new treatment in Moscow. Tell us first about the pioneering new treatment, because that is fascinating. Well, this treatment has actually been around for a while, although it's largely used to treat cancer. It's a chemotherapy-based treatment, and is it's very successful. There's been international research done into using this treatment for multiple sclerosis and the result the results have been really really positive do you know have you come across other people that have had it i have met several people that have had it both in the um, facility that i would i'm trying to go to in mm. moscow as well as in mexico famously carolyn wyatt the bbc reporter right. has had this treatment there in mexico i also know of, of, of somebody that's had the treatment here privately. I'm interested in the fact that you mentioned it's similar to or is chemotherapy because chemotherapy treatment is very cruel. Mm-hmm. It is a very, it is a drastic treatment but the reality is that multiple sclerosis is quite a drastic debilitating disease and this treatment although drastic offers the best chance of me having a disease-free future. Currently, the medication, the disease-modifying medication that I take, offers a 50% chance of reducing my relapse rate. It doesn't guarantee any... I will still have multiple sclerosis, and I will inevitably still have relapses. And every time I have a relapse, there's more damage done to my my nervous system, which results in, in more disability. This treatment, the HSCT treatment offers an 80 to 90% chance of stopping the progression of my disease forever. And so it offers me the best chance of a future. Sorry, so even if you have a relapse, it won't make it worse? Is that what the treatment does? It stops It stops the, that the, uh, downward progression, if you like. The treatment should stop the progression of my MS so that I will have no further relapses. Wow, that's brilliant. So that's you're, virtually, you're virtually re- cured, as it were. People are very 
nervous to use the c word i think and we're still we're still waiting on nice guidelines for this treatment to be available in this country which is why that the cure word isn't used can you try and give us a bit of an insight as to how multiple sclerosis actually affects your day-to-day life because I know people who have it. I don't like the term suffer, but frankly, they do suffer. So how mm-hmm. does it affect you? Well, I mean, the thing with multiple sclerosis is that it affects everybody in a totally different way. If you imagine your central nervous system and your nerves like a, a wire, like a foam wire, the, the plastic coating around the wire, if, you, if it gets damaged... It doesn't conduct the electricity properly and then you have to fiddle around with it so that your phone charges properly. That's exactly what's happening in my body. The myelin, which is the cover that surrounds the nerves, gets damaged. My own immune system thinks that it's an infection or dangerous and it is attacking my nerves. And so in every person, depending on where their damage is, will depend on what their specific symptoms are. So for me, I have quite bad foot drop on my left leg which means I can't feel my leg and my foot properly so I wear um, a very attractive leg brace to help to help that it doesn't relieve it totally but it does help me not fall over quite so much I have memory issues I have thinking issues fatigue extreme fatigue is probably the the most debilitating of all the symptoms that I have and especially looking after two young children. Well, I was going to say, Tony introduced you as a mother of two from northwest London, and one can only assume that that is tiring enough at the best of times, but then to have to combat what you have as well as must make life very tricky. It's busy, and I'm tired a lot of the time. I mean, show me a mum that isn't tired, but the fatigue is very debilitating, and I am... Yeah, something Quite a up. few years ago, I worked with a young lady who uh, had MS, and she found that there were times when she felt quite well, and then there would be other times when for perhaps as much as three months, she found she couldn't do anything. Are you in that sort of situation? Absolutely. Most people that have MS have what they call relapsing and remitting disease, where you have a period of a relapse where you're ill with exasperated symptoms and then have a period of recovery my last relapse was in march when you say that you suffer with relapses do you know if a relapse is coming on is it a gradual thing or is it almost a flick of the switch it it hits you out of nowhere totally there's no way of predicting when it's going to happen there's no way of planning for it i can wake up i mean that's what happened in my last relapse i i just woke up one morning and i couldn't i couldn't physically get out of bed That must really affect how you almost live day-to-day life. It's very scary to have that always hanging over you. And how are you doing with the crowdfunding, one question, and how much do you need to raise, second question? So I need to raise £50,000, which is a huge target. Mm. I have a date to go for my treatment in November, so I don't have very long to raise that money. So far, the response has been amazing. I've had support from the Jewish News. My daughter's school have been really supportive. The community as a whole have really got behind me. And in the six days so far that my page has been live, I've raised about £3,500, which is phenomenal. That's pretty good. 
Pretty good game. So Not bad in a few days, that's for that's sure. amazing. And we'll be sure, by the way, to put the details on our website as well. So for Thank anyone you. who listens, who does want to contribute, we'll make sure they know. Can, can I just say what it is? It's called GoFundMe. It's GoFundMe page, isn't yeah. it? So we'll, we'll make sure the details are there. Definitely. What would it mean to you if this treatment does pay off, as it were? Can you try and give us a sense of sort of what that would mean to you? It will secure my future and it will secure my kids' future. It will mean that I don't have the constant fear of relapse hanging over me and it will mean that I can function as a, a normal mum knowing that I'm going to have enough energy to look after my kids and go to work and do the just do the normal things that I used to take for granted. Out of interest, what sort of work did you do? I work for a Jewish social care charity. Okay. And I run a community. I run the community program for their flagship centre. So, so at the moment, sometimes you can't get there because you're feeling weak and. and yeah, I definitely have more more sick days than the average person. Yes. So you'll um, be able to get back to normality. Well, yeah, I used to I used to work full time and I had to drop to part time because I just couldn't couldn't physically manage working full time and being a mum and just getting through the day. So I'm really lucky that they've been been so flexible and supportive. Fiona, thank you very much for coming in and talking to us and good luck with raising the money and good luck with the treatment as well. And once you've had that, we would like to have you back in here and tell us how it all went. I'd love to. Thank you. Thank you very much. We should stress at this stage that if you or a family member do have a condition such as MS, please make sure that you do consult your doctor before seeking an alternative treatment for that condition. If you would like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. Email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. On Facebook, go to facebook.com forward slash the Jewish views. On Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK, or you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with Jewish News. And we've been joined now by two delightful young ladies, Karen Ben-Ezra and Diana Sackless. And Karen is the founder of Karen's Nursery, surprisingly enough. (laughs) But the nursery isn't actually a nursery for children, though it is. But I'm making a terrible pun now. It's also got a lot to do with forests. Is that right? That's correct. Explain. So we are also a forest school, which means children are learning outdoors and explore outdoors. Which comes first, learning the alphabet or learning all about forests? We are learning the alphabet in the forest. (laughs) Oh, so you don't sit inside a schoolroom and learn how to read. You go and sit among the trees. We do both. So we combine between the forest school, which is learning and preparing sessions uh, specifically for the forest school project and combined with learning indoors. So we have the indoor premises at the nurseries. So Dan, what do you actually do there then? I'm the head of the forest school session in Belsize Park and I oversee the other forest school session in the other nurseries. And I help all the members of staff to train them and to prepare all the sessions. Now, the whole idea came from Scandinavia, I believe. That's right. Why? 
because this is the way how they learn in these Nordic countries. They actually learn a lot of the curriculum outdoors, and there it's called school, but in England it's called forest school to differentiate it between so, the things. So, I'm sorry if I'm being a bit stupid about this, but why is this so important to learn about? It's lovely to learn about forests and trees and things, but what has this got to do with actual schooling? Why is it so important? Before a child goes to school, there's a lot of preparation in terms of being confident, in terms of being social, in terms of core muscles, because a child in school at a very young age in the UK, they go to school at four plus, which means they have to sit around tables and sit perhaps on a carpet for a long period of time. For a school, as any physical activities, empowers that. So... During, I mean, through forest school, we also empower other stuff, which makes children very strong and very prepared. So you were saying it gives them a great deal more resilience and self-esteem, are you? Yes, it increases also the immunity, the health, the core muscles, and it encourages the curiosity, the creativity. It builds up the self-esteem, the confidence of children. Can I ask you, how does it help the health because I can we, understand the other things, <laughs> but why health? I mean, we go out in any weather. Well, I could give them flu. any weather. Any weather, give them flu. So <laughs> then, uh, in spending time outside is very healthy for children, even in the, if they feel a bit unwell. It's it's healthy. So to be even outside. if it's pouring with rain, you we take will them go out. outside. Yes, we have a special outfits for uh, rain. It's rain outfits called Max. The <laughs> waterproof clothing and. You know, welly boots and children learn about these aspects of the weather because in, yes. But I'm not trying to be flippant, but when you're out in the rain, how can you write anything? Surely the paper gets ruined. Do, do you write or anything like that in the rain? Well, or? that it doesn't happen on each activity. The most activities that we do, it's involving, you know, collecting sticks and learning or making marks in the mud. And we don't really take pens and paper with us. We just make all this. So it's more, le- more learning about nature rather nature than and than combining the, academic the, the academic side with the nature, yeah. like counting the sticks or making numbers out of the sticks. When did you first find out about these forest schools and what made you get involved with that? Our project, so we introduced it to, forest, uh, to Karen's Nursery two years ago because we heard about this name forest school what it is so we qualified the in each nursery somebody qualified to be a forest school leader it's a whole year it's a whole year of learning so we wanted to give something extra to the children especially with outdoors activity and especially in london when we find that children don't really spend as much time outdoors. So the children of two or three, you like them to come as early as that, as young as that? Two to five. We cater for children from two to five. Mm. And the groups that we take at the sessions, they are, depending on which branch we are, is the older ones or the youngest one, we do activities in the nursery, the same forest school activity. Now, it's an Israeli school originally, the one one that you run. It's an Israeli concept. So we bring a lot of of our traditions from Israel. It's very warm, very loving, very accommodating. We bring the things that I grew up on, which is the Kabbalah Shabbat on Fridays. We bake challahs every Thursdays. So there's a lot of things that I bring from my childhood. So we combine that with British curriculum, 
and it's a great, it's a win situation. So it's a Jewish school. It's a Jewish well, school with a, an Israeli atmosphere. So you have no non-Jewish children there? It depends which branch. We also have non-Jewish families that choose to come and learn uh, Hebrew. <laughs> you know, all of this conversation is reminding me very much of, not that I've necessarily experienced it myself, but my understanding of life on almost a kibbutz, almost, as it yes. were, being at one with the, the great outdoors and, yes. and learning in a different environment. Yes. Would you say that there are elements of that introduced to Yes, it? also on daily basis. Especially in the Hamster Garden suburb uh, branch, we are inside the park. So we do forest school with all the age groups every day. Our garden also caters for that. So we will have not a junkyard, as they say in the kibbutz in Israel, but definitely a mud kitchen and mud area. So kids will uh, explore through real equipment, not just plastic. Their imagination there is endless. The way they work with the body, the balance, the planning, they always plan. They always find solutions. So we don't really feed them with solutions. They have, you know, at a very young age, they have to look at, the, at, at their surrounding, look at what's happening around them and find the solutions. I remember as a child when I went to school. Um, oh, what a memory. Uh, <laughs> it's a long time ago. Not quite as long ago as Clive, but it is a long time ago. When I went to school as, as a child, we did, one of the lessons we had as young children was gardening. Where we, where we did planting, we planted plants and, and fruit bushes and, and we picked in the spring and summer and everything else. Uh, but I don't think when my children went to school, they didn't do that. So it kind so of got lost so, on the So way. it did yeah. start and it's yes. now going, almost it's, going back to where it it's was. It's going back. Uh, we have lots of trees. We let the kids climb on trees. Mm. And it's uh, fascinating to see at the beginning of the year, the children will just look at the tree. And towards the end of the year, they are climbing. I have the quickest <laughs> question to ask. When you say about climbing trees, my understanding is that this is a small matter of health and safety, the two words yes, yes. that yes. people dread gets in the <laughs> yes. way. How do you work around that? We work with the children on being, I mean, concentrating with their bodies. We talk to them, we talk through them, so we supervise them. They're not just running and climbing wherever they want, and it's a process. We teach them to trust themselves. And actually, if we listen to children, they know how to balance themselves. They won't take risks, which are more than they can take or care for. Especially with forest school, they have little flags that they create and they go and find the space and they put the red flag where it's, it's dangerous. And they so are green with where they can stay, and it's all their work. So then they... They take all the, you know, the ownership. What if the child through no fault of his or hers, is the sort of person who is very clumsy, who suffers from a thing called dyspraxia, yes. which is being having no coordination. Yes. So we had a couple of years ago, well, longer, many years ago, in Barnet, there's a program called Moving Matters. When they started introducing it in Barnet, they took us, because we were outstanding, they took us as a had you call it, like a, like a trial, a, a trial. The, the first the project uh, went, and uh, it was fascinating because they took exactly those children who are clumsy, but they're not specially children. So then the kids who will, you know, sit wobbly on the chair, or so they won't be prepared for school seating. And then we work a lot on core muscles. So we work on the floor, we work uh, standing and crossing in the middle. We do a lot of balancing, lots of squirting. We work on the muscles rather than 
doing more writing. When these children move from your school onto the next schooling, and maybe they're with children that haven't been through the same process as you are teaching them, how do they react with each other? From my experience, the children who left our preschool nurseries, they were very, very strong children. So they were the pioneers of most of the reception classes that they went to because they knew to make choices. Mm. They made choices very quickly. They were not scared of others. They knew how to socialize. They knew how to say whether they're sad or happy. They knew how to say what they want. And I think this is the very, very basic skills that a child needs. And in terms of health and safety, I forgot to mention that every time before we go out on a forest school session, the manager goes to do a risk assessment of the area. Right. Because we're also using, in Belsize Park, we take a bus. We take the they children on the bus and we go to the Hampstead, to the, Heath. To Hampstead Heath. You never know who spent the night there the night before. Mm. So every day, that we do, every Thursday, we go, we go on a forest school and uh, the manager is there. To well, collect. It all sounds extremely fascinating. Thank you both very much indeed. Pleasure. Pleasure. <laughs> and now it's time for our rabbinic thought for the week from Rabbi Jeff Berger of Rambam Safadi Synagogue. Parshat Pinchas is about zealotry, about women's rights, and about leadership transition. It's also about learning from our mistakes. B'nai Yisrael stood on the brink and were somehow rescued by Moshe once again. The plague following the worship of Baal Peor in last week's parasha claimed 24,000 lives, far more than Korach's rebellion, and hauntingly similar to the number of Rabbi Akiva's students generations later. Rabbi David Foreman from Aleph Beda points out the parallels between the sins of Baal Peor and the golden calf. Both came at a spiritual high point, the golden calf immediately after Har Sinai, and Baal Peor after God's blessings, bestowed by Bilam on B'nai Yisrael. Isn't it odd, though, that each time the children of Israel experienced some form of revelation and redemption, it was followed by a national sin? Is there a discernible pattern, and can we break this repetitious, self-destructive cycle? To put ourselves in a place where we experience great spiritual enlightenment and closeness with God requires emotional vulnerability. Soon after, when the novelty wears off, we're challenged by what to do next. Do we revert back to our former habits or propel ourselves forward to a higher level of commitment? This dynamic also occurs in relationships, with a spouse, with our children, with friends, or in our communities, inviting us to be emotionally open. But respecting and sustaining a sense of relationship intimacy isn't easy, largely because it requires extending our feelings of vulnerability, which can create discomfort and even a feeling of danger. Emotionally, there's a point when each of us makes a choice to continue or to close off. Especially during this period known as the Three Weeks, a historical time associated with divine wrath and the destruction of our two national temples, it's easy to emotionally run away or hide from historic failures. We are told that disunity and baseless hatred were the spiritual causes that weakened the Jewish people. By recognizing the redemptive cycle described above, building on positive spiritual events and extending our sense of openness and vulnerability, perhaps we can right the mistakes of our forebears. Reaching out to God and to those around us with warm, welcoming hearts and a willingness to engage 
is a crucial first step. Thank you to Rabbi Jeff Berger of Rambam Safadi Synagogue for our thought for the week. And also thank you to him for telling us about his recent trip to Bosnia. That's all the Jewish views we have time for for this week. So thank you also goes to Karen Ben-Ezra and Diana Sakharis telling us about Forest School and to Fiona Elias, who told us about hopefully her pioneering new MS treatment that she hopes to receive. Thank you, of course, also goes to our producer, Sue Greenberg, and to you at home for listening. Don't forget that you can always listen to this episode or indeed any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. And please do remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. From me, Phil Dave. Me, Clive Roslin. And me, Tony Honigberg. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.